The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello operatives and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Wubba-lubba-dub-dub. Who's apparently been watching Rick and Morty. And we have a special guest tonight, Ed Vick, uh, founder of Moon Press. Speed Racer, go. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. Wow, Ed, way to date yourself. All right, so tonight we're going to be talking about Moo Press, which was an underground comics press, I believe. Was it underground or small press, Ed? Uh, let's call it independent. We'll go with independent. Okay. It was an independent comics company during the 1980s, uh, which I believe was founded by our guest tonight. And first, I think we better talk a little bit or learn a little bit about Ed himself. So, Ed, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, uh, first thing is, uh, I'm 57, so I remember things like the original Kemba and Speed Racer and grew up with them. Mm -hmm. I uh, grew up in Texas and California and uh, London. London, England or London, Ontario, where I'm from? (laughs) London, England. Okay. We have to be specific about this. Yeah. My uh, father ran a couple of the old pirate radio stations uh, that were offshore uh, outside England. Really? Did that pay well? Uh, it did, uh, as long as it lasted, but the uh, pirates got legislated out of existence after a couple of years. Well, they were pirates after all. This is true, and there were real acts of piracy involved, including murder and uh, uh, taking over different stations. It was uh, pretty exciting times. Wait, so were these pirate... Okay, well, let's okay, let's rewind here a tiny bit for our audience. So why were there pirate radio stations floating off the shore of England back in the 1960s? Commercial radio was not legal, not used at all, in England and in Europe prior mm-hmm. to about 1964, right. uh, when Ro- Ronan O'Reilly started Radio Caroline. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started it on a ship outside the three-mile limit of England, Mm-hmm. and uh, broadcast commercials, hugely successful, followed up by many other stations. There were probably 30, 40 of them at least, uh, including the two that my father ran, Swinging Radio England <laughs> and uh, Britain Radio. Really? And uh, they took advertising from English uh, commercial ventures mm-hmm. and uh, made a whole lot of money for a while. Being outside the three-mile limit, there was nothing really anybody could do about them. Uh, they had to change uh, on one of the on the Radio England. They mm-hmm. had to change the frequency they were broadcasting at because they were interfering with uh, some kind of government broadcast in Italy. Huh. <laughs> so they had a really really powerful radio. Wow. Um, antenna antenna uh, transmitter. So. Mm-hmm. Um, What Britain finally did was come up with the Marine Offenses Act, Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act, which made it illegal for British citizens to advertise Mm -hmm. on pirate radios. Ah, that's how they did it. Essentially, 
Yeah, the uh, my dad stayed with the radio station radio for a while uh, and uh, took the ship over and broadcast in Dutch for a while, but uh, it just didn't really take off enough, and so uh, he went back to his first love, which was uh, oil geology. Okay. Every time the oil industry would would tank, we'd we'd go off and do something else, and then when the oil industry in America would take off again, we'd move back to Texas and work in oil again for a while. That explains Texas. Huh. <laughs> yep. So where are you based now? I'm in Seattle now. Ah, okay. I've been here since 1986. Uh, I was working for a company called Half Price Books, mm-hmm. which has like 140 stores now. Uh, mostly used some new books, videos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I opened their first software store, Half Price Software, in Texas. And they decided they wanted to open one up here in Seattle, and so they moved me up here. It's really nice when somebody else pays for that. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, thousands of dollars to move you. So that was really nice. Yeah, that was. And uh, I got here in '86, and I believe Jeff Wood had just gotten here a little before then. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, followed by a guy named Hal Hargett, and Wade Busby was a Seattleite, and the four of us became the Seattle Four. And started publishing uh, Comics FX, Comics Fandom Examiner, mm-hmm. which was uh, our, our remit was to cover only uh, creator-owned comics. Right. So anything from something that was put out by Epic, you remember that uh, oh, yes. line that Marvel was doing for a while, mm-hmm. yeah. on down to just you know the tiniest little eight-pager, uh, com- uh, you know, mini comic. I published mini comics from about 1980. Three or thereabouts. I did one called Fan Tunes that ran 30, uh, 33 issues, I think it was. Right. And uh, it was a mini comic, and I had regular writers for it, a guy doing columns or two, uh, and then a lot of people that were doing uh, uh, cartoons for it or, or little tiny stories for it. Right. And so that kind of led to us getting together because Wade and Jeff and Hal all did their various uh, publications as well. Right. Okay, so let's go back a tiny bit. So so when did you first get into comics yourself? Like, had you been into comics for most of your life? I got into comics from a very early age. Uh, I won't say what it was I very, very first read. I don't have, remember that far back, but it was probably a Bugs Bunny comic book. My right. parents wouldn't let me read anything that had the slightest bit of violence. They were very right-wing, concerned mm-hmm. about, you know... Uh, right. The, violence and sex in comic books because they came out of the you know 40s and 50s right yeah and and so i could read you know bugs bunny i could read donald duck uh, etc etc and so classics illustrated of course was of course. big because mm-hmm. those were educational uh-huh. <laughs> and uh so i kind of weaseled my way in once i got to be like 10 or 11 you know pretty old mm-hmm. uh by getting some war comics my parents were like oh let me read it yeah okay i'll you know you can get a war comic or two and right. then another couple of years i would get some superhero comics i'd buy them at the store and every time my parents would find them they'd throw them all out <laughs> so, you know the class classic throwing away your comic books right and so after a while they gave up on that and they said okay you can buy the superhero comic books and about six months later they were like Aren't you too old to be mm. reading comics? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I just kept on uh, going with them. I had uh, 
a closet in the house. I, uh, probably a classic uh, situation, but it was just chock full of comic books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and after I after I went off to college, you know, my parents gave away all my books to uh, the the church sale, but I managed to keep all the comic books because I'd taken them with me. <laughs> right. And I kept buying them. In college, I bought uh, Cerebus number one and the first, uh, what was the Windy Peeny? Uh, ElfQuest. ElfQuest, yeah. Bought those, bought those or right off the newsstand at uh, a Texas uh, comic book store. So those were kind of early days of what we'd call alternative comics. Mm, yeah. uh, because in the 70s, we went from only buying your comic books new from mm -hmm. a store, you know, I'd go to the Seven Eleven or whatever convenience store was nearby and buy them off of a rack, a wire rack, mm -hmm. to eventually going to a comic book store, um, which I did in Amarillo, Texas, and then when I went to Dallas, uh, Lone Star Comics had a couple of different stores there, and that was where I uh, really started finding alternative comics. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, then. They uh, had more interesting storylines, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, at that point, I guess comics were probably still coming out of the whole Wortham uh, seduction of the innocent, you know, the whole comics code at that point. So the independents would be putting out much more interesting stuff because they weren't code approved, right? That's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, you kind of, once you're in college, many people are going to grow out of reading so many superhero books. I didn't entirely leave it, but... Mm -hmm. You know, you're reading about a little more interesting storylines. I read some of the undergrounds. Those started in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, most of the undergrounds started in Texas, as a matter of fact, at the uh, University of Texas. Right. Hmm. Out, out of their uh, school newspaper. Really? That was Wonder Warthog and things like that oh, from the 60s. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. I think if I... Yeah, I think if I recall right, that was the first recognized underground. I, I'm willing to be wrong on that, but it uh, came out of UT and... 61, 62. So the undergrounds were there for a while. The only thing that would have been really weird before that would have been some of the, uh, uh, what were those eight pagers, the, uh, the, the ones with the filthy uh, contents? Oh, the uh, Tijuana Bibles. Yeah. Tijuana Bibles. That's right. That's right. Yep. Uh, so, you know, first you had the mainstream comics, uh, although they weren't called that, they were just called comic books. Right. And then the undergrounds, and then the alternatives, and then. Once I started publishing, I really only started publishing in 89 of actual comic books. They were their black and white interiors and the color covers, and we kind of were called small press comics, I guess, to an extent then. Mm. Or independent, you know, one or the other. Well, how are they being published at this point? I mean, a lot of our readers probably aren't... I mean, a lot of our listeners probably aren't familiar with the method that they were using to publish back then. How were they actually getting these things uh on paper and putting them out. Sure. Okay. Um, you'd find a printer. Uh, when we were the Seattle Four, uh, Wade, Hal, Jeff, and I would use physical means of pasting up the contents. Obviously, computers were nowhere near sophisticated in those days. And we would use a hot wax machine and take strips of printouts from a printer and cut them to size and glue in uh, hot wax in illustrations and move things the, the benefit of the hot wax is that you can pull something up and then reposition right. it however you like several times so you can't do that on the computer but it was pretty easy and we'd have boards 
that were larger than uh, the publication mm-hmm. uh, because when you shoot something and make it smaller, then it looks better. Right. You might lose fine lines, but generally the um, the the uh, aesthetic uh, looks of the the piece, yeah, it looks better. Right. And that was why somebody like Ditko would work twice up, you know, twice yeah. the size of the comic page. And these days, these days, a lot of people only work a little bit larger. Um, because it saves paper and saves their their elbows. Right. Yeah. <laughs> saves their saves them some work. Um, and then we'd go to a printer, mm-hmm. and either you found a local printer, which we did with some books, or you'd go to a printer who was farther away but knew how to do a comic book. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went to uh, Quebecor. For a lot of our publications, which was in Canada, yes, uh, the Quebec is you know kind of a dead giveaway a dead on that. Giveaway. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and they had been printing for Marvel and probably DC and just mm-hmm. everybody else from the get-go, and they really knew comic books backwards and forwards. They wanted uh, though to print a comic book that they could print twenty thousand or a hundred thousand copies of something, and when we're doing our 4,000, 5,000 copy print runs, they're like, I don't know if I really want to do that. Can we make money off of it? Because mm-hmm. the value is in just being able to set that those huge printers mm-hmm. and let them run for an hour to print up however many comics. If you put one of ours with 4,000 copies on it, they're running their machine for two minutes and they're done. Yeah. So then they have to set up the next one after that and the next one after that, which takes a lot more of their time. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of our books, we went to uh, Brenner Printing uh, in Texas, who we helped figure out how to make their printer uh, do the job that needed to be done. Um, so the, them being much smaller, they uh, were happy and hungry to have uh, the the jobs from us. I bet. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So and they printed for Antarctic Press and some other publication publishers too. That's yeah. why the name would be familiar because I would remember them from Antarctic Press. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That would be right. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So and so uh, when you first dealt with them, that was as part of producing Comics FX magazine. Uh, no, Comics FX we. Uh, went over to uh, a, a very small newspaper printer mm-hmm. uh, that was here in Seattle. Well, not Seattle proper, but uh, nearby. And uh, since they knew newspapers, we were publishing something that was a tabloid size. Right. So you'd have to unfold it a couple of times to get it to the full size. And we just happened to like that. Although for the last three issues, we did it as an eight and a half by 11 magazine. Cause then we could go to, right. you know, somebody like Brenner and they, they knew how to print that. Right. Whereas someone who's a tabloid publisher prints on newsprint, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years later, this paper is just crumbling. But of when course. you're doing news, who cares? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. With a comic book, you'd like to have a, you know, 70 year old comic book like the Superman number uh, 62 that I'm looking at right here. You want it to look good. Uh, and they printed it on paper that was not so, not all that great, which is why so many of them fall apart. Right. So, and then with uh, with alternative comics, you tended to print or tried to print on a little better paper, and right. so it stayed stays more white for longer periods of time. Mm. 
so did you think that these alternative comics would actually last longer? I mean, well, obviously longer than tabloids, but was the intent to actually produce something that would last? Oh, absolutely. With a comic book, uh, the the value is in, A, the enjoyment of it, mm-hmm, of and B, collecting a run of them and being able to see kind of an overview mm-hmm. of what a storyline is, where it's going and where it's come from. Right. Uh, and then, and then some hopefully, hopefully intrinsic value of having a, you know, Superman number, whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Of <laughs> and then it depends. It's worth whatever someone else is willing to pay for it. Right. And, you know, most of mine, just like the most alternative comics are not worth anything. Um, golden age comics are almost any of them are worth something because the vast majority of them were thrown out. Yeah. Once you got into the Silver Age, a higher percentage of them were kept. Once you got into the uh, the, the comic book stores, a huge number of them were kept because then the stores themselves would keep all the overages that they happen to have. And sometimes, especially early on, if it was a you know a Spider Man, they might sell fifty copies to their customers, and they might have another thirty copies that they just put back aside. They don't do that anymore because they want to no. you know run lean. Yeah. But in those days, yeah, they, you know, that's why a lot of them are not worth all that much once you get into the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Oh, okay. That makes and sense. And then, you know, so many alternative comics are were really crappy because <laughs> mm-hmm. the the um the cost of entry was pretty low. You know, you you either pay for the artwork or you don't. Then you pay for it to get printed and you have to do the distribution, which involves shipping costs and the like, or fulfillment if you're doing direct mailings to people for uh, mail orders. And um, that just doesn't cost a whole, whole lot. You know, you might put it on a charge card and you might wind up with, you know, $10,000 in debt. But but you think of a comic book company that spends a million dollars a month probably on, on publishing their stuff. Right. And that's just not huge amounts. So, you know... Joe college student can take a really crappy piece of art and story and put it out and, and have it in diamonds distribution, you know, in their uh, catalog right alongside anybody else's, you know, so something really horrible like Reagan's Raiders, which was a, a, an actual independent comic book. One of the uh, Simpson was, ones. Was, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was right out there alongside much better work. And, I, you were asking, you know, what was what were my hopes for it? I was I was hoping that I'd be a comic book publisher the rest of my life and make a living at it, but that didn't turn out to be the case because the bottom dropped out. Yeah. And it looks like we've got a special guest uh, coming onto the show, Jeff Wood himself, who has been mentioned already several times, mostly in uh, passing, has decided to drop by and join us. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Well, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be here, and uh, people tell me I'm I'm special. Yes, that's that's a good thing to hear. Well, so, yes, yes, you special, are special. Uh... Special needs. You are definitely a special yeah, person, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I'm late. Uh, just uh, had a little bit of uh, computer trouble, but I have quelled the revolt, and I am now online and with you. So, uh, fill me in. What's going on? Well, we've just so far talked a little bit about. 
uh, Ed and his background, and um, uh, and we've just been going through the printing process, actually, of uh, how comics were printed back in the day, and magazines were printed, I guess, too, um, because many of our listeners may not be familiar with uh, how comics were made back in the past, considering how different it is now. Uh-huh. Back mm-hmm. in the pre-digital era. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, Don, I think you had the a few questions about uh, the printing process that you want to ask. Well, kind of. I find it interesting because um, I know Ed was giving some of the the, the print runs that the uh, print shops didn't like to do less than twenty thousand copies. And it's interesting to note that that this is, again we're talking the seventies coming into the uh, into the eighties. That for a mainstream comic, which would be like your Marvel, your DC, your Gold Key, uh, like he had said, the ones that you could get on anywhere that sold like newspapers and magazines, mm-hmm. at the time, anything that had a run under 250,000 copies was considered a failure. Right. Um, That's right. And also, uh, you know, half the copies sometimes might sit on the rack until the next one comes in and then just get pulped. Yeah. Yeah, because that was the other thing... Um, with uh, the comic shops, because the newsstands, they had a return policy where if it didn't sell after, I think it was two months, they would send them back to the printer and you get something back for everyone that wasn't sold. But when the comic shops took off, you started having a, a more interest in back issues because they'd hang on to them and then make them available past that expiration date. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that was... But that was why they were called non-returnable because mm-hmm. the comic shop had to eat them somehow. Yeah, yeah, because that was uh, the other thing with that too. When you're talking um, the beginning of the comic shop era, um, I remember it had been said that twenty thousand was considered a good run for a comic. Uh, you had mentioned that you guys were doing like four or five thousand copies. There was a time. Uh, mid late 80s where you'd get a lot of the independents like i know you'd mentioned antarctic that a decent selling book for them you were only looking like 2000 copies in a print run mm-hmm. i wouldn't say 80s i would have said late 90s mm-hmm. uh cuz that happened to us as well uh, see if you were a comic store in the 1980s you generally felt it was your responsibility to carry everything in the distributor catalog Mm-hmm. Even if nobody ordered it from you, you'd have it on the shelf just in case somebody came in. But then, as we were discussing, some of those really crappy books <laughs> came out, and mm-hmm. nobody wanted them. And they'd just sit there, and yeah. if there was a number two, the comic book store would buy it. If there was a number three, the comic book store would buy it. But then, after a while, the more savvy comic book store owners would say, Wait a minute, maybe I don't have to carry everything. And... The ones who were carrying everything were the ones that the comic book stores died in the implosion. Yeah. Uh, which was, what was that, 93, 94, right? Wasn't that when the number of comic book stores cut in a half or less? You know, just a huge number of them closed up, and that was a, a death knell for a whole lot of publishers. Yeah. Um, I kept going, and Arctic obviously did, but there were many times in many books where I would either have to cancel something because the orders were too small or publish something in a edition of, you know, 1500 or something. Hmm. When I started out, uh, my first actual, uh, comic book that I published was the desert peach. Number four, Mm -hmm. the first three were put out by Steve Galachi with thoughts and images, but he decided he really wanted to just cut to 
publishing his own work in Albedo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then pretty soon he wanted somebody else to publish that too. But that's beside the point. Desert Peach number four, which I published in February of 1990, and I think I sold four or five thousand of those, and that was reasonable, and I could pay a page rate because early on I did actually pay the authors. It wasn't strictly royalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, paid the artists, paid the authors, and um, that the uh, the numbers that was not the very most I ever sold of anything, but that was pretty close because I had twelve distributors when I started out. Wow! And one by one by one, every other distributor besides Diamond went out of business. Yeah. And guess what? Every one of those distributors went out of business, owing me money, mm-hmm. owing a hundred other publishers money. And that made those publishers go out of business, and it hurt me too. You know, right. so it, you know, lower sales, uh, distributors, you know, having problems <laughs> paying. The one, the one distributor, the last one to die, uh, I think, if I remember, I was Capital City, and they, God bless them, they paid me what they owed. <laughs> hmm. Well, okay. Again, but every other one. Let's go. Yeah, let's... That, that was the way it worked. What was the time frame for that, Ed? About when did, the, did all that implode? I don't know exactly when Capital City died, but they were the last one, and I would put it at the latter third of the 90s. Um, so from a dozen distributors in uh, 89, 90, uh, you lose one or two of them every year for a while there. Mm-hmm. As as like I say, the number of comic book stores that were buying everything went down and down. And then Diamond, of course, sounded the death knell by going exclusive yeah. with several publishers, where um, you know the other distributors couldn't carry. Was it a Dark Horse, Image, whatever it was, you know? Right. Yeah. And then eventually DC and Marvel. Yeah. You know. Right. So, so they all went. Now we've got one distributor, so it's a monopsony. <laughs> you have one one source for your comic books, really, pretty much. Hmm. Yeah. Instead of a monopoly. Right. Well, okay, let's go back a little bit. So, so Ed, why don't you tell us about uh, Moo Press? Like, what made you decide to suddenly become a comic book publisher? Sure. I started publishing um, fanzines in 1981, mm-hmm. and my first fanzine was called Miscellanea Unlimited. Okay. And... One of the traditions in fanzines is to kind of keep track of how many things you've published. So Miscellaneous Limited number one was Moo Pubs number one, and then mm-hmm. Miscellaneous Limited number two was Moo Pubs number two, and on and on. Mm-hmm. So that um, when Comics Effects came along, I didn't use the Moo Pubs on those because we were publishing them as the Seattle Four. Right. But eventually. Um, Moo took, I decided I was going to publish alternative comics. I, I think a lot of that was because of Steve Galachi deciding no longer to publish The Desert Peach. Mm-hmm. And uh, seeing another comic called Raj that uh, no other publisher was interested in at the time. But I thought it was, you know, a good, fun story. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, you know, there's enough interesting comic books that I 
am not seeing anybody else interested in, so I think I will go ahead and start publishing. This was 1989. Mm -hmm. And so I did Morty the Dog, number one, from Steve Willis. Uh, <laughs> October 89 was my first book that got a Moopubs number as an alternative comic. And I'd already published 100 things before that, issues of fan tunes and whatever else. You know, many, mm -hmm. a whole lot of eight-page uh, mini-comics, you know, because I did fun little artistic experiments like taking type from newspapers and just kind of, you know, inking it and sticking it on pages and doing a mini comic of that. Right. And it was, uh, it was a Texas fan artist named Brad W. Foster that got me interested in doing various experimental fun mini comics at that time. And when I decided I was going to self publish, I said, well, what will my publishing company be? And, and it was Brad that said, Oh, well, there's no other choice. It has to be called MU Press because that's that way you can keep doing the publishing the Mupas numbers, which seems perhaps an odd reason to keep the name, but the name worked. Right. You know, I like the name after all because I'd come up with it. And so now I've published almost 500 things, you know, yeah. even from from posters to uh, a calendar to, um, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. Including Snow Bunny, Jeff. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. That's uh, that was our involvement. That was uh, somewhere in the mid '80s, I believe, uh, '87, '88, something like that, uh, wasn't it? Or am I misremembering incorrectly? No, I published the Snow Bunny book in 1991. Okay, that so was a little July. later. Mm -hmm. a little. A, yeah, a little that was after later. I decided to go independent. Yep. Right. And then we did a follow-up, which was Mechanomoids, which I believe. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that was 94 or something like that? Yeah, thereabouts. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah. And actually, Jeff and I did, uh, along with, uh, uh, was it Wade, uh, a, a sketchbook just a few couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we were still doing, we were still doing things. Although, I sadly, think... Wade is uh, now, now gone to his reward. Well, you know, I think that's the last time we all appeared together as a Seattle Four with Chuck Melville appearing as Hal Hargett because Hal has been missing <laughs> for years and years. But uh, Chuck kind of stepped into his shoes and kind of being our fourth member. But now that Wade yeah. has passed on, I guess we won't do that anymore. Um, or we could do some recruiting, I guess. <laughs> hmm. But I remember we'll that. <laughs> we, we went to the Emerald City Comic Con, and I forget exactly which one it was, but it was in the last couple of years. And... Uh, mm -hmm. Wade being, he worked in a, uh, a printing shop that did uh, t-shirts and whatnot. He did us all a very nice polo shirt with uh, a logo for the Seattle Four. And uh, the four of us appeared together at the convention, and Ed was selling his little sketchbooks with our artwork. And my son was there, and he uh, got a little uh, polo shirt with the Seattle Four, so we called ourselves the Seattle Four and a Half that year. <laughs> so my son being, I think, eight or nine at the time. So Right. Now, was the Seattle and, and you guys? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Was the Seattle for back in the comics effects days and such? Did you guys actually have some like local fame? Like, were you actually somewhat well known? We were known within the self-published and independent comics fields. We'd mm -hmm. we'd receive hundreds of pieces of mail, and it was Jeff that actually processed all the mail. We'd get loads and loads of things to review and letters of comment and such. But we weren't known in Seattle per se, um, mm. outside that that, outside that, that, that field, field, right? Yeah. I would okay. say, yeah. 
back when I was publishing Fantoons, my little mini comic, I actually just sent it to distributors. I solicited it, sent it to actual distributors. So I was one of the few, along with the uh, amazing cynical man, that uh, actually came out in comic book stores in a mini comic form, as hmm. opposed to comic books in those days. That's but yeah, the, the Seattle Four was was basically the four of us deciding we were going to publish Comics FX. Right. Yeah, that was our big project that we did together. And the Seattle Four lasted essentially until 1990 with Comics FX number 14, which was the issue when I took it on as a Moo Press publication. Uh, not to say that you know people like Jeff and and uh, Wade didn't still reviewed for it, but we had other people come in and uh, guest edit issues like Chris Lightfoot and uh, Toivo Ravinen and and and. It, they you know took it in a little different directions, but we still had interviews and comic strips and all kinds of great stuff in there. Hmm. And that worked for me because it was about that time that my wife and I went back to school. We went to WSU in Pullman, Washington, and we weren't available in Seattle anymore. So it was kind of good that we picked up uh, some extra help that way, kind of take up the slack. Yeah, and so Comics FX lasted 20 issues. The last issue was edited by Toivo, and I think it had a Phil Folio interview in that issue. Hmm. And that would probably have been 92, 93. Wow. Because uh, Moo is still around, isn't it? Uh, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> no. Uh, I, I still had... Uh, until a few months ago, the website, moopress.com, and I'll probably go ahead and get it back up and running again where I'm selling the back issues, but I stopped right. actually publishing 10 years ago. Um, the MooPub's numbers are continuing because I still do uh, fanzines and such, uh, contributions to various um, appas, right. which is a whole other world. Um so I'm still publishing things, but they're just not generally available. Okay, because I've seen, uh, for Moo Press, one of the last things you got was the uh, Post Bros. I, yes, I, I published uh, Matt Howarth from about 93 uh, with some of his Post Brothers single issue stories. And mm -hmm. then the actual Post Bros themselves came on once I was doing Aeon, which was a sub press for uh, Moo, mm -hmm. uh, uh, subcategory, because I, I felt like Moo was getting a whole lot of furry books, right? and those are all well and good, but I felt like I was getting typecast a little bit, and also, it never hurts to be up near the front of the distributor catalog, so with mm -hmm. Aeon, A-E-O-N, <laughs> uh -huh. I was very near the front of the catalog, Yes, you were. and uh, <laughs> so then I was doing Post Brothers and, uh, and The Desert Peach, Madonna Bar. Uh, and various other books, uh, and and uh, that started in '93, and I continued those past the end of Moo, I think, actually. Okay. So that's uh, so um, when you started the uh, the 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 Aeon specifically, how'd that work out? Um. Hmm. When any new comic book publisher starts up, it's kind of a time of excitement, right? right? Because then you've got notice and people have things they can talk about. And I think a lot of that is the same with a new imprint, is that 
you know, it's news. Yeah. Something is happening. And uh, the early issues sold pretty well. Um, and I was publishing books with some had some kind of notice out there. You know, people knew who the Desert Peach were because of Donna Barr. They knew who the Post Brothers were because mm-hmm. Matt had been publishing them with Ripoff Press for a decade before I took it over. Yeah. And he had a really big um, following amongst music fans because oh, he yeah. was doing a lot of uh, cassette covers yeah. uh, in those days, especially for some of the uh, uh, German uh imports and such so um those books sold better than many others might <laughs> right yeah because i remember that was uh aeon came out just before the uh the the big 90s collapse started and i remember because yeah you... the first aeon book was 93 june yeah. 93 and then so, it yeah. was it would be pride i want to say around 95 is when everything started imploding. But after that, like Aeon still had a whole pile of like titles coming out. I, uh, very often published two or three things every month. Yeah. Um, it was a good idea not to let a month go by without having something mm-hmm. out there. And the more often of obviously that you could publish something, the more it would be in people's faces, the more they would want to follow it. And so, um, Matt Howarth was just a workhorse uh, with this book coming out bi-monthly for years with us. Yeah. And, uh, God, I really appreciated that. (laughs) So, Ed, what was your, uh, like, proudest moment in comic publishing? Like, what's the thing you're most proud of as far as uh, being a publisher? I think it's got to be publishing some of those books that I don't think would have gotten published if I hadn't done it. Um, uh, Blue Moon from Charlie Wise, Desert Peach, uh, even the Post Brothers, are pretty idiosyncratic. Mm. Uh, yeah. the, the art styles are not necessarily what you'd see in your run-of-the-mill comic book. Uh, the storylines, you know, the, the gay younger brother of Ervin Rommel, mm. the, the Desert Peach, <laughs> that's not something that uh, may necessarily have an enormous <coughs> following, but mm. by God, I'm interested in it. And I hoped that there might be enough other people. I, you know, I I really went with what I wanted to see when it came to what I would publish. So that's got to be really what I'm proudest of is that I put out books that just might not have gotten out there otherwise, and uh, mm. supported some people. You know, with those page rates, I supported some artists for a while. Hmm. So that's interesting too. With uh, say you and Jeff, how you went the the editorial route, and Jeff started focusing more on actual producing a material. How how does that yeah? Uh, oh, how does that come uh come about? Well, I'm more of a writer. Uh, I've sold thirty or so short stories, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't done a lot in comic books. So within comics, I was more of a publisher, um, just because that's. You know, when you do that, it's hard to do many other things at the same time. You know, I also had a full-time job. So, uh, you know, publishing, doing a job, (laughs) that pretty much takes up your time. Jeff? Well, um, we were talking about, uh, uh, I'm getting a little bit of sound break up here. uh, Can you repeat the question? Oh, yeah, it was the idea with, um, 
the two of you had worked together, especially as part of the Seattle Four, but Ed oh. went more editorial, and then you went more into the actual production of the comics. I was wondering what uh, what kind of motivated that that direction. Well, uh, if you're talking about the comics FX, a lot of that was the fact that uh, we kind of divided chores, and uh, I was in school full-time at the University of Washington at the time, which is in Seattle. It was not far from where Ed lived at the time. And uh, my classes took me right by the post box where we had uh, all of our mail. And this was all pre-internet. So everything that we received was via the postal service. And I was able to drop by the box and pick up an armload of mail every day. And then between classes, I would go ahead and process it. And this just worked really well for my schedule. And then we had uh, Wade Busby doing the paste-up work, the actual uh, kind of the grunt-level design, graphic design work, because that was his specialty. And uh, he was really good at it. So we all had kind of like our niche that we all uh, worked at for the Comics FX. We were able to kind of complement each other that way. And, of course, I think we all felt that uh, out of the four of us, Ed was probably the most mature and the, probably the most businesslike. So hmm. he kind of got, he kinda got uh, installed as the head guy by default by <laughs> kind of like, <clears throat> excuse me, common, uh, common uh, experience there. We all decided that he should be that guy. I did the accounting out. in. I also had the charge cards. <laughs> you know, the guy with the money, he can make the rules pretty much any way he wants to. Plus, he was, um, Ed was working at a place called uh, Half Price Books at the time, and so he was able to get things that uh, came into Half Price Books like that. Uh, is that where you acquired your printer, as I recall? Yeah. Ed, we got a really yeah, good is. printer there. So, yeah, that was uh, uh, kind of his, his niche that he was able to bring to the group, his, his, his superpower. And by the way, the Seattle Four, we were superheroes for a while there, as I recall, Ed. Uh don't you recall that um, uh, Lightfoot, Chris Lightfoot, was doing a Seattle Four strip that was in oh, yeah. the Comics FX, in which the four yeah we of us, had about 20, 20 comic strips inside the, the every issue. Yes, and they were big; they were large size. But uh, uh, Chris thought it would be funny but, if the yeah. Seattle Four publishers were also superheroes, and uh, we had this one weakness, and we 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 fought against this one supervillain who. Uh, his only, his only power was to make this screeching sound, and it turned out to be very effective against the Seattle Four because we all wore glasses, and it was such a high pitched shriek, and all our gla- all our glasses blow broke, and we were now blinded, and uh, the supervillain was uh, uh, victorious and whatnot. So <laughs> I remember that. That stands out in my mind. I have forgotten that one. No. Oh. Aren't you glad you invited me back? So, anyway, <laughs> the uh, uh, a lot of the other strips, uh, people remember those. Like, uh, years after the fact, we had one called Nora and the Grenadian. And that was about, uh, like, this medieval girl, barbarian girl, and she had a, a dragon that she rode. And uh, that was done by Jose Montes. And, uh, he very cute a, art style on that one. Oh, just gorgeous, very anime style. And he passed away a number of years ago, and I actually had people like, um, I'm active on DeviantArt, which is a kind of an artist website. I call it like 
the world's refrigerator door that everybody mm-hmm. sticks their artwork Pretty up much, there. yeah. And uh, I, I, I happened to post a little note on there. I said, uh, you know, Jose Monte is my buddy. He passed away, and all sorts of people wrote to me and said, oh, my gosh, I remember seeing Dora in the Green Onion in his website. So, hmm. or on, I'm sorry, not on the website, but in the uh, Comics FX on the pages there. So I posted up uh, on my uh, my own website. I posted some of his strips there, just uh, kind of a memorial to memorialize uh, his passing. Hmm. And I actually had uh, one lady. She actually made fan art. She made Jose Montes, uh, uh Nora and the Gradonian uh, weeping for uh-huh. the artist hmm. uh, who's passing. So yeah, pretty amazing. Hmm. You, you don't know how far these things go until like you know years later when people bring it up and they say, yeah, I saw that there and I remember it. Right. And, and yeah. they even respond to, you know, current events and say, you know, this, this is what I remember and produce new artwork for it. And that hmm. That's one of the things Fanishness does for you is uh, creates a memory. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I gotta say when you, you say stuff like that, I think for me personally, one of the reasons why I enjoy comics and I always have and probably always will is because of any form of entertainment, comics are pretty much the only one anymore that's a one-man show. And that's because true. of the, And you get, like, a less distilled notion. And I find that a lot of the comics that I like, um, they're more memorable. They might be weirder. The stories are more surprising. And it's because it's not being filtered through a team and it's not being filtered through editorial and it's not being filtered through... Uh, marketing or any of that that's true most of them but the ones we like anyway yeah yeah because even even the uh like when you look at the uh the 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 bigger studios which is kind of funny going back to our talk before because for comic fans especially like older ones in north america you think your marvels and your dcs and i think nowadays even then there's still uh there, there's kind of a, a loosening up of the uh, the overall corporate idea because number one, the old ideas aren't selling anymore, and two, when you got to the '90s and into the 2000s, there was the big deal about creator owned and creative freedom, and a lot of the guys working there now will come and go, like they'll leave Marvel and do their own project because you don't need that big publisher anymore. What you trade off is uh, monetary security mm. when you do that. And I think a lot of younger guys are more willing to do that, or the bigger names are more willing to do that. That was how you got Image, was that the, all of those names were big enough that they felt like they could sell their comic books yeah. in sufficient uh, numbers. Um, you know, you got somebody with a family, they may think twice about leaving a Marvel or a DC. yeah. I can, I don't I don't know if uh, if it's as as big as it was because I know going back to to numbers nowadays like say a a Marvel comic the print runs are usually around eighty thousand copies anymore I think so it's 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 again that it's not as all pervasive as it used to be and I I think um you're seeing a lot more people especially the last five years that are doing what would be considered um, self publishing. But they're doing it more online and more print-on-demand. So you're seeing more, um, I'd say, slick, professional, top-tier stuff that some dude is just putting out on his own. 
That's true. And, uh, you know, when you're, if you're going to do something online, you can do it for free. Uh-huh. Uh, Ch- uh, I think we were talking about Chuck Melville a little while ago. He does several comic strips. Uh, Mr. Cow uh, that is one of them. And you don't have to really pay much of anything because you get to put them online for free. And if they take off, that's when you do a Kickstarter and publish them in the collection. Mm. When you know that you're going to be able to have the money to put out something that's going to be a really nice looking book. Yeah. You know, the, when I was talking about the, the pulp that things were printed on that turned yellow and was, you know, falling apart uh, in the old days, nowadays, you know, you can make sure going in that you've got enough money to print something that's going to look really beautiful. Yeah. And last for a long time, hardbacks and such. Yeah. No, the question is, is that good or bad? Because just like um, you had mentioned as well, uh, the black and white glut, where in the 80s, one of the things that sort of killed off the independence was that anybody who had a couple of thousand bucks and and some gumption could print up their own book. (laughs) And um, that ended up ultimately being bad because you had the market get flooded with a lot of stuff that shouldn't have been published. But nowadays, because there's little cost to the uh, creator and no cost really to a lot of the fans online, uh, like I say, is that good for the the medium or bad for the medium? Um, it's a matter of taste to a great extent. Mm-hmm. If you've got enough fans to pay for a Kickstarter printing of a book, and those books generally go to only the people that paid for it. They're getting what they want, and they knew that going in. Hmm. Good point. I still get the uh, Diamond previews every month because, again, there are a few things that I buy. And almost every month there's some new small publisher who started up and decided that this is how they're going to make their living by publishing their comic books. And, right. oh, boy, some of them are not so great. <laughs> <laughs> Damning with faint praise. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're just not awesome yet, Ed. They're just not awesome yet. <laughs> well, are that... there any uh, are there any standouts in the crowd, Ed? Anything that you'd recommend as being particularly good or particularly bad? Oh man, no, put me on the spot. I <laughs> um, I think I've been around long enough that I skip past a lot of the ones that don't look very good. So, <laughs> you know, that's something that is just not really going to uh, take up any brain cells. Oh. Uh, I'm, You know, the things I'm buying more often than not are going to be people whose work I know. You know, Yusagi Yojimbo, I'll buy anything mm-hmm. that Stan Sakai puts out. Um, Astro City, I pick up. Very good book. Uh, but, uh, you know... By and large, uh, don't ask me that much about current comic books, I'm afraid. Hmm. Yeah, you're no longer with uh, Half Price Books, as I recall, so you probably don't see as as many of those uh, coming through your shop uh, like you used to. Not so much. I'm actually working for a bookstore again. I'm working for the University Bookstore in Seattle, which is allied with the University of Washington. And uh, the only comic book that we got in recently was uh, the first issue 
of Black Panther, and that was because it was written by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Really? He's a very big name mm-hmm. in huh. African-American writing. Yes, he is. Yeah. And so the fact that he was writing a comic book was, was actually big news. Hmm. And evidently so, he wrote a really good book. I haven't read it, but evidently it was really good. Hmm. So but we do they, carry graphic novels, we carry manga, and, you know, comic strip collections and such, but uh, I don't get very many of those anymore. Hmm. Now, is any of your old Moo stuff, or sorry, any of your old Moo Press uh, publications, are they still in print? Like, is there anything that Moo Press yes. still puts out? What's still in print? <laughs> um, anything that hasn't run out. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 when my wife and I last moved, we told our real estate agent we were looking for a house with an attached warehouse. Okay. She didn't believe us. She kept, she kept showing us little bungalows, and bungalows is not big enough for our books, because mm-hmm. when I moved, I had 200 boxes of books. And my wife had another, I don't know, you know, 100 boxes on top of that. Mm-hmm. So we finally found a place because a friend of ours likes driving up weird streets. Okay. <laughs> and he drove up a street in the middle of an industrial district, I kid you not, that is also a green belt in Seattle, uh, and said, oh, I think I found your house. And it, yes, it was a house with a detached three-car garage. So I'm sitting in it right now, and my three-car garage is 1,000 square feet, which wow. is beautiful and packed to the absolute gills with comic books, books, magazines, movie posters, everything I've collected. Wow. And when you work for a used bookstore for 20 years, you collect a lot of books. <laughs> it just works out that way. Um, and so when we come to move, yes, there's a corner of this where this, this warehouse, haha, three car garage. And that's still full of everything that I didn't toss or sell. Uh, and when I say toss, there were a couple of times we had to move when I was when I said to myself, I don't think I need 15 boxes left of this particular whatever. I'm not even going to say what it was. Right. You know, I think I can get away with one box left of this book. And so, yes, there's many, many books. I have uh, practically all of the Matt Howarth books still available. Uh, quite a lot of Donna Barr's Mad Raccoons by Kathy Hill. Um a lot of the earlier things, you know, Snow Bunny is sold out, uh, uh, or Raj is sold out. You know, a lot of the earlier books are, are all gone by now, but uh, there's still thousands upon thousands of books here. The problem is, is that, like I mentioned earlier in the show, I don't have my comic, I don't have my website any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get it back up, but, you know, people were buying things a few times a year from me. It was not really making big bucks. The um, the way I make more money than that is going to uh, sell at conventions. And uh, right. Jeff, I, I'm going to go to Rose City this year. I'm going to go to the Rose City Comic Con in your hometown. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll hope to see you there. Uh, you know what the funny thing is? It used to be really easy to go to a comic book sh- uh, uh, convention. You'd just show up at the door and give them a few bucks. They'd give you a badge. You'd walk in. And now... If you haven't bought your tickets about six months in advance, you're out of luck. Huh. And that's true for the Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, and it's also becoming true for the Rose City Comic Con in Portland. And wow. uh, Yeah, I went know, to the San Diego Con from 1982 on, and from 84 or so, I would have an Artist Alley table, and then when I started publishing Moo, I'd take a dealer's uh, space. 
And I tell you, that's really the best way to show to go to a convention because then you've got a base of operations and you can make money instead of spending it all (laughs) if you have something to sell well the funny thing is i used to have a table in artist alley quite often in uh emerald city comic con and uh i kind of let that lapse for a couple years thinking i would pick it up again later and quite frankly you can't because the show is is sold out really the same day that they opened it up for applicants so they've actually instituted this year a lottery system when they have openings. Huh. You can submit your application, and they will randomly select a few to come in and, and fill those slots. So that's how popular the the convention has become, and it's literally two or three times the size it used to be, too. It's this gigantic, enormous convention, and it's very impressive. But uh, yeah. in the I go. I used. I used to go. I'd take my son with me. We'd hang out in Artist Alley, and I'd take pictures of costumes. And the costumes are absolutely incredible. The the, mm-hmm. the work and the skill level mm-hmm. you see there, and also uh, you see everybody's favorite character. And sometimes a costume will pop, pass by, and you go like, "I know I've seen that character before, <laughs> but I I have no idea what it was." And you'll have to catch up to him and say, "Hey, uh, great costume." Who are you? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I remember like uh, one of those was like uh, Archie's cousin from the the comic book or something. Oh. She was uh, yeah. <laughs> the time travel exactly. No, no, no. It was try. I think it was just uh, some random family member from like the centuries of publishing that uh, Archie Andrews <laughs> has been in now. Right. She appeared in some episode somewhere, and it was somebody's favorite character. And they came to the Comic Con all dressed up as this character. It was very obvious that they were wearing a costume, but it wasn't obvious at all who she was until I asked her. Hmm. So hmm. then you see lots of Trekkies. I bet there's He's, hardly any character who's too, too obscure to have a, have been a cosplayed at one time or another here. <laughs> well, I've actually seen a cosplay site online where, where people are challenging each other to see who they can come up with. It's a stumper. You know, it's like you wear this costume to a con and see if you can wear an actual costume representing a published character but one that nobody will recognize you know or very few very 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 few you know kind of a specialized nature wow but you see lots of trekkies you see lots of stormtroopers mm-hmm. you see lots of gaming characters uh, yeah, lots of marvel and dc characters a yeah. lot of marvel and dc characters even things like r2 units there's people that a whole r2 unit community of people that do radio controlled <laughs> Robots, you know, that run through the convention, and they're very uh, professional. They're uh, they look uh, movie perfect. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's pretty incredible. Yeah, a lot of the cosplayers I... bother me sometimes because they do stuff that's so perfect. Uh huh. And then you see, like, they do a big budget movie, and it looks nothing like the character. You're like, how can this amateur could do something you people couldn't with twenty million dollars? But that's just me. Well, and then there's the other end of the spectrum where you have people come in and they've dyed their underwear or something like that. There was two girls I saw. And they actually they were Batman and Superman, and they had like uh, artfully like uh, safety pin clothing and stuff that was cut apart and reassembled. And they said like, "Yeah, we made our costumes last night." You know, <laughs> and actually they looked pretty good. You know, just uh, uh, just throwing stuff together. I took their picture. That's that's kind of one of my other hobbies is photography, actually. So I, I go to the conventions and do pictures. And I've been trying to get back into 
uh, Emerald City, and I'm going to try to be down at uh, Rose City there for you, Ed, and see if I can't uh, kind of link up with you there for a few minutes at least. Of course, it won't be the same without Wade there, because Wade was always at the Rose City Con, and he was always at the Emerald City Con. He was really good about getting in there. Hmm. And of course, I'm talking about Wade Bus, the uh, right. other member of the Seattle Four. Yeah, because that's interesting. Who's the conventions take? I know the uh, the Emerald City one is is a pretty big deal these days. It's huge. Yeah, like it's it's the the uh, the the response that a lot of people have for the Emerald City Con has been quite positive because it really is focusing still on comic books. Ah. Whereas you know the San Diego Con, for instance, you know is really focused a lot more on Hollywood. Yeah, you know, being its proximity there, um, and. I I really like the atmosphere at uh, Emerald City a whole lot more. I can believe they that. have they have their Hollywood uh, partition. They have a lot of actors come in and meet the people, but that's a little bit segregated from the uh, floor there. So there's kind of like the comic book area, and then there's the people who want to meet the uh, celebrities mm-hmm. on a different floor. And I think that works pretty well too. Yeah. Yeah, because I know that was a lot of people uh, complained about the uh, Comic Con was that it's not as much a convention as it's becoming viral marketing for all of these big budget things coming out down the uh, within the year or so. That that's what San Diego kind of became. It kind of became kind of like this trade show for all the uh, great big studios. Yeah, and the people who had like old boxes of comic books were really feeling squeezed out of that. Mm. Hmm. Do you agree with me, Ed? Is that kind of your take on that? Oh, I, I would entirely agree. And even at uh, even at Emerald City, you don't see as many people, individuals with stuff. I I like going and having you know old comics and magic cards and Disney pins and paperbacks and you, this, that, and the other thing. But uh, most of the uh, people there, you can tell that what they do is go pack up everything at the end of this convention and go to the next convention. Mm-hmm. That There's probably people out there that go to 50 conventions a year, different on every weekend, with their stock, and then they buy out other dealers right. <laughs> at a convention to sell their stuff at the next one down the line. Yeah. Hmm. The uh, I, I had some Golden Age comics uh, at my table at Emerald City, and they were entirely bought by different dealers. I don't think I sold a single one to a fan. So I think they were just going to buy them and then mark them up yeah, and sell right. them at their own tables the next time. Sad, but true. Yeah. I seem to recall you had some pretty expensive titles there, too, as well, Ed. You had some, some rare and valuable comics. I did, and I had, uh, what, Fantastic Four number one at this latest one. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know... Spider-Man number one, which was nice. And then at the very, very end of the convention, I sold, uh, traded, uh, eight out of nine of the uh, the power cards for Magic for a whole bunch of uh, Golden Age comic books You know that I'm looking at right now, and they're very cool, but I will probably resell them down the line, too. So I'm guilty as well. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. That's kind of the fun thing, though, of going to a convention is you, you look around and you can meet the celebrities, and, but you can also buy T-shirts. But you also find these little treasures, you know, kind of like this. It's kind of like the world's largest rummage sale in, in some respects because, <laughs> you know, everybody's got like an old box somewhere mm-hmm. of stuff and you can dig through it. And you can find 
treasures of things that uh, mean something to you and maybe they aren't quite so valuable, but it's, it's fun to see them again after so many years. Mm-hmm. Like I recall at the Rose city uh, comic con last year, or maybe it was the year before uh, losing track. They had a one table full of ancient video games. They had all the Atari video games, <laughs> and all the, uh, all those really old cartridge level type games that, uh, I don't know if anybody actually plays those anymore, but uh, I showed my son some of the ones that I had played when I was his age, and that was that was kind of fun. And he got right down to it. He like he picked up that joystick, and he was gonna he was gonna figure this thing out. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that that's just pretty much what I did too when I was his age, you know. So that was fun. I let him play the ET game cartridge on Atari for a while. Oh I man, said, yeah, me back. I know. And then Joe, yeah. I was going to say I'm a bad father, but anyway, yeah, I had to show that that it's, it's so, it's so like uh, famously bad. I had to have him right. try it just for fun. Actually, he was getting it figured out too. It's just that there's a lot of places in the game where if you get stuck, you literally have to reset it in order yeah. to get out of your right. predicament. Oh. See, that's why I had to buy a house because... I end up with stuff like old video games and model kits and that, but I can't bring myself to part with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you know what happened to me. I would expect one? most of us are not quite hoarders. <laughs> Jeff was really good, though. Jeff, Jeff actually would bring all of his stuff to the con and sell it at his table for a dollar or two. So I would make sure that I was the first one to look at the boxes and stuff. <laughs> Well, the thing was, I was not a collector, so they were all just fun comics to me. So I sold, like, an Albedo number one for a dollar. Mm-hmm. People are saying, like, a dollar? Really? And I'm saying, well, yeah, I guess. Is it worth more than that? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, only three or four hundred dollars. But, uh, but yeah, and the reason I did that is because uh, since I'm not a collector, I would read the comics. I'd enjoy them. Maybe my kids would read them, too. And um, I don't have a whole lot of room in my house, being that I have kids. Mm-hmm. So I have to kind of liquidate the collection every now and then, or at least reduce it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of these things go to conventions because I keep them in good shape. I bring bottles, and I bring figurines, and I bring comic books, and I bring hardbound books, and all, all the stuff that I don't feel that I need anymore and sell that at conventions. Hmm. And usually it all sells, too. It's like it's, it's a great place to bring... You're kind of like your garage sale fan level stuff because somebody there will buy it. Yeah. If you're putting those kinds of prices on it, yes, indeed. <laughs> you know, you'll notice at that last convention, I got a, a little bit smarter. You know, I went on eBay and I found out what the going rate was for a lot of these things. <laughs> and I and I got it, you know, so I made yeah. a lot more money at that particular one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I should have been doing that to begin with. But, uh, oh, well. I'm glad somebody got a good deal out there. Mm. That doesn't bother me. Right. So to refocus for a second here, um, on the, back onto comics and away from conventions. Not that this isn't interesting, but so um, Ed. Oh, did we have a theme? Yeah, well, we're just, no, yeah. we're just actually we're just talking about comics and you guys in general. But uh, but I just wanted to sure. ask. Sure. Um, so Ed, if you had any advice for someone who wants to go into the comics field, what would you say? What would, what advice would you give them? Don't go into it for money. Go in for it for love. I mean, what is that? Ten words or whatever. Um, right. You, you, you know, if you try to make money at this, 
go into advertising god you know go into anything else the, there's an old joke that you know what's the best way to make a small fortune in publishing mm-hmm. start out with a big fortune <laughs> right <laughs> um so so you know just just don't what you want to do is go with your passion mm-hmm. you know do what i did find things you really love and then you won't regret having you know maxed out your tre- your credit cards um right practical advice these days is um do it online first right. uh you know take advantage of the freebies that you can uh get a patreon page go with uh uh crowd crowdfunding because mm-hmm. it's there right. and if you're good you'll get the followers if you're good if you improve um then then you'll sell them and right. uh there's there's plenty of people that have done that. Look at Girl Genius. Mm-hmm. The way that they, uh, you know, that Phil Folio was making okay money publishing books that other people, uh, you know, doing art for books that other people were printing, and um, then they decided to do Girl Genius themselves and were not making money at it. They did Xenophile, which was X-rated and made a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, for a while, but then Girl Genius didn't. And then they decided to to give it away online, and that was the key to their their freedom and uh, they, they their house. You know, buying a house is really nice when you can do that with your publishing income. Right. Yeah. Is he is he still there at Seattle? Yes, he sure is. Uh, they own a three story house, and they were really mm. smart. They bought it from the guy who built it, who was an architect. So that house is so overbuilt, it's not funny. <laughs> you know, it's going to be the only thing still standing when the big earthquake hits Seattle. Huh. Wow. I don't know if you uh, realize it, but Seattle is expecting uh, an earthquake somewhere between a 7 and a 12. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. Well, it's on the West Coast. That's kind of obvious, I suppose. <laughs> mm. Like they say. Oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. But, you know, it could be a thousand years from now. You never know. Yeah. Expecting right. is an interesting term when you're talking geologically. <laughs> that's very true. Could be now. That's true. So, actually... uh, so yeah, that's my advice, is, is do it for love and... and uh, uh, if you find subject matter that other people are not um, covering, that might be a good piece of useful advice. You know, um, uh, David Lasky did a book about uh, musical family, and it really took off and got a lot of uh, notice in Library Journal and the like because it was a biography that was in comic book form, but nobody else had covered it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right. So he did original research. That was a helpful thing. Hmm. Yeah. Look for something that's not being covered by other people. Okay, makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how about you, Jeff? What would your advice to new creators be? Or <coughs> well, into the industry? I would suggest that uh, you try to find something that kind of turns you on as far as a new creative property. I was just sitting here thinking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again. Mm-hmm. You know, those were some guys that uh, they sat around the table one night and they said, uh, you know, hey, let's make uh, let's make these turtles into ninjas. You know, turtles being some of the slowest animals, and then mm-hmm. the ninjas being one of the fastest uh, martial arts there is. Mm-hmm. And they were, of course, laughing and, and how silly it all was. And it turned out to be something that really worked out well for them. So... I think uh, you have to kind of follow your passion that way and uh, find a way to kind of 
present it to other people, which doesn't cost a fortune because I've seen so many publishers, they want to start with, they say, we're going to publish our number one book. And then with the proceeds from that, we're going to start publishing our second uh, issue and our other issues. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm always telling them, I'm saying, you know, you're not going to make your, that much money on your first issue, no matter how good it is. You know, you've got to, you've got to have kind of a, an offense in, in depth. Mm-hmm. You've got to figure out, you know, three or four steps ahead and how you're going to be able to afford that. And then, of course, cheaper is better, and you can certainly do that online, uh, starting with something as easy as uh, going to one of these free websites where you can post up your artwork. I know people that publish on DeviantArt, which is just free, and they publish a, or they post up a, a, uh, a web page, one page out of their comic book every every other week or thereabouts, and they have a following there. Of course, they don't make any money because there's no way to, you know, the advertising revenue goes to DeviantArt. But I suppose you can uh, open up your own, your own Patreon and people will pay mm-hmm. you for that. And you can also open up your own website and develop your own advertising revenue. And uh, once you start getting feedback, you'll find out what works and what doesn't work. And you'll kind of gravitate toward the things your audience loves as well as yourself. You, know, you got to kind of there's there's two markets there. You got to do what you love. Mm-hmm. Just got to keep your your market happy too. Right. And uh, and find that uh, kind of that uh, happy uh, uh, not a happy medium, but kind of that uh, that fine line where uh, everything converges toward uh, getting some kind of monetary financial success. Right. Well, that's the question, though. Do you really need to actually succeed financially to do comics? I mean, not really anymore, right? It can be just your hobby. Yeah. I know a lot of people that do it on a hobby level, and they do a really good job. And I I follow several people like that where they're not making much money on it. They probably won't, but uh, I sure enjoy what they're doing. Mm. Well, that's one of the advantages of the Internet, really. It allows people to do things like that. Um, as someone once said, the greatest part of the internet is it lets everyone do anything they want. Of course, they also said the worst part of the internet is it lets anyone do anything they want. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Um, and it's hard to find things. I mean, it's, it's, gosh, it wasn't Andy Warhol who said that 99% of everything is crap, you know? And that's probably an overstatement for the internet. <laughs> so what you need is a good filtering program. And the best way to do that is kind of get connected with people who have the same interests as, as you. Right. I can't tell you how many times somebody said, you get, you got to check this out. This is great. Mm-hmm. And that it's almost like an online word of mouth. Right. Yeah. Where stuff gets, stuff gets out and people start gravitating that way. Right. And uh, of course, DeviantArt is a wonderful thing for that because it has the favorites. Mm-hmm. And if you find somebody whose artwork you like, then if you go to their favorites gallery, you'll find out that a lot of things they've selected are very similar to the subject matter that they have in their own mm-hmm. gallery. Right. And it kind of opens up, you know, more possibilities for your interests as well. Hmm. And then 12 hours later, <laughs> you can finally surface. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> Same yeah. thing with YouTube. You can sit down to watch a YouTube yeah. video at, at, at 11 o'clock and you watch for 15 minutes or a half hour and you look outside and it's 5 o'clock Hi. in the morning. 
Actually, mm. I also wanted to ask Ed. So, as a publisher, do you have any regrets? Mm. Like, do you have anything that you wish that you'd published, or that um, you know, thing you wish you'd done differently? Um, well, you know, it's always easy to second guess yourself. Right. But if I had done, you know, one thing differently, what kind of cascade would that have started? Right. I do remember that sometime around '96. <laughs> Uh, several people sat me down for an intervention and uh, tried to teach me the, the, the meaning of the word no right. um, in O <laughs> because I tended to really like a lot of stuff and if mm. I liked it I wanted to publish of it course. and maybe sell another you know not nearly enough copies to uh, to make the make the money back and, and you know that helped lead to the demise of Moo is that Maybe, maybe I should have mm-hmm. focused on publishing, you know, two really good books or three really good books. But then, you know, I might not have found something that I really liked and, mm-hmm. and gotten it out there. So right. who knows? I, the, you know, regrets. I've had a few. <laughs> is there any is there any one project that you had that you felt should have been a lot or should have had a lot more exposure? Could have been a real success. If you could have um, just sold a few more copies of it and got the word out there? Sure, every single one of them. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Uh, I, I think Actually, that all I'll, of them that... What's that, Jeff? I was going to say, I'll buy that. I, you know, I've seen the, the books that you've done, and they've all, I thought, had some redeeming quality, which should have given them success more than they did, I think. But being a small outfit... Like MU, it's it's really hard to you know get enough of the Actually, volume out okay, there here's, to make it here's, self-sustainable. Here's my regret. Okay. Here's my regret. Um, maybe I should have gone all in. Um, maybe I should have quit my day job so I didn't have you know something else to to uh, divide my time with. Maybe I should have really worked on it because I think I did a really great job of acquiring comic books by cool idiosyncratic artists and writers. Mm-hmm. I think that I published them pretty well. You know, catchy logos, great-looking covers, uh, you know, production values that were decent. Um, where I fell down was promoting them, and maybe if I'd had another 40 hours a week, I could have made them more of a success than I did. So hmm. there we go. That, that, that could easily be where um, I could have done a better job. You know, like Jeff says, uh, maybe if more people had seen the books... Maybe more people would have bought the book. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe uh, if I'd started five years earlier, it would have made a big difference too. Because mm-hmm. when I started, you couldn't publish anything and sell less than maybe three or four thousand. Hmm. But five years before that, you couldn't have published anything and sold less than nine or ten thousand. Mm. And that would have really given me much more momentum more copies out there for people to see. You know, Dark Horse Comics, their first few books were really crappy books. Mm-hmm. They, they had some really bad stuff early on. Uh, they grew out of it, but uh, I bought every single one of the things that they put out because that was the kind of person I am. If it was something interesting, uh, even if it was you know black and white and, and hardly had any distribution, I would still seek it out and, and buy it. Those are probably worth something now, too, because Dark Horse, aren't they the number three publisher in the United States still? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. They are up there. 
they still do Star Wars, and I think they have some other large properties as well. Yeah. Or did they sell that? No, they lost Star Wars because remember Marvel is owned by Disney now. So oh, okay. Dark, Dark Horse did Star Wars like for a dog's age, but I think like last year okay. Marvel got Marvel got uh, Star Wars back because of course Marvel and Disney Star Wars all the same now. Right, same company. Yep. But Dark Horse has plenty of very successful comic books. Yes. They were doing Hellboy, which just ended too. Yeah. Hellboy ended. Yeah, that was. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, he just oh. published the last issue. Did Hellboy die at the end? Oh, Hellboy's been dead for a while. He's been traipsing around in hell. Well, I mean, wasn't he? Uh, but wasn't also, he just, I, I I haven't actually read the comic myself, but I seem to understand that he was destroyed in hell, or or otherwise. He was in hell, and he was having adventures and defending people just like he did up on Earth. But then there was a second Hellboy book with a BPRD where it was earlier stories of him Mm. to when he was still back on Earth, but but younger. And anyway, yeah, now he's now he's moving on to other things. Hmm. Yep, because Hellboy is one. Yeah, Hellboy is one of those franchises that was successfully transitioned into the movies and actually done done really well, at least the, the first movie. Yeah, they were. I think they were well translated, but unfortunately, they weren't as well received. Yeah, Ron Perlman really wants to do a third one, but it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, because the first two were good movies. I did enjoy them. Yeah, I agree. I was surprised they were not well received because most of the people I talked to about them uh, agreed that they were actually very enjoyable superhero movies. That's. A lot of superhero movies get very mixed reviews. Yeah. yeah. So Hellboy was kind of unusual that way that it got at least audience uh, approval. Yeah. It was well received, but I don't think it was just general audience material. Like I think that among the geekier set, I think that um, the Hellboy movies did actually very well. But as far as general audience go, I just don't think it really caught on or they really caught on. Maybe I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a bit of cult cult movies to an mm, extent. Exactly. And I thought. I thought the. First Let's turn one this around. Let's turn oh. this around for a second. Rob, Don, are there comic books you guys are reading now still? I read tons of them, like every month. Um, one of the ones that I like is uh, because the big thing now are the big collections. There's a lot of old stuff that I didn't get a chance to read because I was too young. It wasn't available. or I wasn't born yet. And there's a lot of the old stuff that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of Japanese stuff that's coming out now that I really enjoy. Mm. What are what are a couple of those? Ah, uh, oh, One Punch Man. One, yes. One Punch Man. Oh, yeah, that's one of the greatest things ever. Uh, I really like Frank and Fran. Have you been reading Assassination Classroom? Yes, I have. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, that one's pretty good. Yeah, there was a few. They just started, I think, uh, was it Dark Horse? Is printing I Am a Hero? Really? Yeah, but they're they're printing these giant, they're like 500-page books of it, because I just got the first official one of that, and that's a good series. Yes. Actually, a movie Mm -hmm. version of that, a live-action movie of that, just came out in Japan. Huh. They were advertising it when I was over there. Wow. I was just in Japan a few weeks ago, so mm. um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I'm afraid, but 
I, in my case, yeah, I don't really read much in the way of American comics anymore. There hasn't been that much that's interested me. I kind of fell out of... I used to love superheroes, but I kind of fell out of them years ago. And mm. so I just never got back into them. So mostly, I'm like Dawn. I, I, you know, I read um, you know, various fan-translated Japanese stuff still, kind of casually. But I, don't, mm-hmm. but I don't really read that many American comics anymore. Which I actually regret a little bit, because I know that there's a wide variety of stuff being done and I'm sure that there's some great stuff out there it's just I just haven't found my way to a comic shop in a very long time well a lot of the better stuff is still is, is not coming out in the uh, in the serial format any longer it's just being published as a, as a book like yeah. Fun Home by Ellison Bechdel mm-hmm. yeah I think I think mm-hmm. that's kind of nice too that um the 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 compilations and I guess the graphic novels as a lot of older folks might want to call them. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm okay with the term comic book. It's just a big one uh, because they're they're <laughs> they're they're coming out in those volumes. I've noticed a lot of American stuff, even some of your Marvel and DC. It's starting to follow the European template where mm-hmm. they're writing a progressive story, but they write it in bursts because they know that it's going to be collected in these big books that are going to be available forever. Mm-hmm. So they're realizing you can't do like the throwaway stories, like especially say your Marvels, your DCs used to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I think how many hundreds of thousands of copies has uh, Watchmen sold by now in a collect version? Yeah, and that's Millions. and that's yeah, because that's a, that's that's the same thing too. If you notice, like uh, DC especially, um, their monthly books they publish them so that. They're semi-serialized so that, say, five issues are one story, and then mm-hmm. they collect mm-hmm. it as a graphic novel as that one story. Right. That's actually yep, good. because I work at a bookstore with a big graphic novel section, yeah. and, and, you know, we don't sell the single issues except for Black Panther. We sell the collection. Yeah. Because you can make more money off of it with less rack space. Yeah. Anyway, actually, we should probably bring this on up to a close, I think. Okay. Um, so, Ed uh, and Jeff, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show. It's been fascinating to hear about uh, the publishing industry and to hear your thoughts about comic books. Uh-huh. You guys were both people with ringside seats for you know a little bit of comic book history. And so it's really great to hear your perspectives on things. Yeah. Well, thank oh, you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I was happy to share. Yes, well, yeah, and you're both welcome to come back on any time. If you have a rant or anything like that you want to you'll get off your chest, just let us know, okay? Fair I, don't rant, I don't rant very often, but uh, I'll let you know if I do. If <laughs> okay. comes out with a particularly bad comic book or movie or something. If, if you're in the mood, okay. Awesome. Give it a burn. <laughs> okay, so on that note, I'm going to bring this meeting of the Department of Nerdly Affairs to a close. Uh, as I said, thank you to our guests. And uh, Don, any final thoughts before we go? Oh no! There's this is uh we got another good episode where we got a whole ton of material that I'm gonna have to sit back and ruminate on for a little bit. Exactly, and yeah. I imagine our audience will as well. Mm-hmm. All right. On that note, uh, tune in next time when we'll talk about more really cool stuff that you absolutely do not want to miss and is not the Star Wars holiday special. Oh, words you got me again. <laughs> good night, folks. Go speed racer, go! <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more, or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. 
You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!